0: Good point to perhaps to consider one of the impacts that the pandemic has had, because obviously with restricted visiting, with wearing PPE, the you know that has been a significant threat to to that really important role, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, no, it hasn't. And um, a lot of the nurses that I've spoken to, so I've, I've done a piece of research, well, still finishing off a piece of research with um, a couple of other universities. Looking at the mental health effect on on intensive care nurses over a long over a year, a period of time. And, and while the technical aspects of delivering care in the pandemic have clearly caused a lot of stress, as has the amount of death that staff have seen. Um, the, the thing that all of them are coming up with is that dehumanisation of care that they found really difficult. So the fact that you can't talk to patients directly because they feel that there's a barrier with the mask and the goggles and the gloves and the apron and everything else, they've not been able to develop that relationship with the family. So they're then because they can't develop the relationship with the family, that they've struggled to see the patient as anything other than a body in a bed of which they have to do a series of technical tasks to. Whereas actually, once you start speaking to a family and getting that relationship with the family, you start to learn about what your, who your patient is, what they liked. You know, families will bring in pictures of them before they were ill. Um, they'll talk about what they did at work or what they used to enjoy eating or whatever it might be. So all of a sudden that patient in that bed is no longer just a patient that needs a series of technical things doing to them. It becomes a human being. And i think that's what the pandemic has taken away from nurses that humanistic element of nursing care that that is is very different for nurses in comparison to other professions
0: yeah do you think through that it's um made it difficult to to establish that that identity as a critical care nurse in the same way
1: yeah and, and a lot of again a lot of nurses that i've spoken to up and down the country have said that they they left despite having gone into work done their 12 hour shift and looked after their patient technically very well they were actually leaving work at the end of that shift feeling as if they'd done a really poor job but they hadn't been able to do all of that those added extras that make a critical care nurse into what they are they're not you know they're a, they're a clinician in their own right but they have all of that added extra benefit. You know, the, the, that being able to, to speak and get involved with families, that ability to be able to wash a patient's hair or put nail varnish on or whatever it is. All of those extra things that, you know, as a doctor, you, would, you wouldn't do because that, that's not your job, but it is part of ours. Yeah. Um, So it kind of felt as if somebody had taken away a really important part of their role. Um, to the to the point that they felt they'd done a really bad job despite doing an outstanding job under the circumstances. When I very first started on intensive care, I couldn't quite believe that you only got one patient to look after. And there was a, to start with, I remember thinking, how on earth am I gonna fill up a whole 12 hour shift looking after one patient? Well, clearly that thought only lasted for about four days when I very quickly realized why you only have one patient. So, you know, being able to manage that depth of skill for more than that allocated amount of patients which simply means that you're having to stop doing things. Now mm. be that hair washing, brushing the hair, putting nail varnish on, spending the time talking to families, not being able to perform pressureary care as often as you would like, not being able to bed bath as often as you would want or as well as you would want. All of those things are elements of nursing care that we feel are really, really important. And as a patient, you know, if I, God forbid, ever ended up in an intensive care unit, I hope somebody would brush my hair for me. And, you know, I hope somebody would do all of those, you know, touchy-feely things, not just make sure that my blood gases and my blood results were all right. Because although that's really important, that's not who you are as a human being. It has a knock-on effect with your relationship with your family as well. Because, you know, even in COVID times when the families could only see patients over a screen, they could still see their patients, you know, with well brushed hair, and you know you've got a beard. But if you if you admit your dad into an intensive care unit that's usually clean shaven, and all of a sudden three weeks later there he is with a long straggly beard, it gives you the impression that actually your dad's not being looked after very well. So that has an impact on the dynamic between the clinicians, the nurses, and the, and the family. And no matter how technically competent and well the patients are being looked after from that perspective. If the families feel that their loved ones look unkempt and untidy and unloved, that has a stronger emotional response than, you know, well, actually, we've made sure their blood gases are all right every three hours.
0: What do you think the biggest challenges that face critical care nurses at the moment are?
1: The two main ones would be mental health. So we know we've got a huge issue nationally with mental health and post-traumatic stress incidents in critical care nurses specifically. So moving forward, we you know we need to make sure that we've got working environments that promote safe mental health for staff. We know that intensive care is a stressful environment to work in anyway. It takes a certain type of person with a certain type of personal resilience to work in those environments anyway. So for those staff, to have struggled with their mental health as much as we've seen, I think says an awful lot. The other thing is about retention. And it kind of links a little bit, but we also know that we've got a huge issue with staff leaving intensive care and equally staff leaving the nursing profession full Mm. stop. The answer always seems to be, well, well, we'll recruit more staff, we'll train more nurses. Without saying it's pointless, it's pointless, isn't it? So, so if you've got a leaky bucket, there's no point pouring water into yeah. it. It's utterly pointless. We've got to identify why are staff choosing mm. to leave intensive care? Why are they choosing to leave the profession? And deal with those issues. We saw over the pandemic, the huge amount of redeployment of staff from wards and from theatres, particularly ODPs, have done an absolutely outstanding job supporting ICU nurses. And some of those staff, really loved it, really, really passionately enjoyed the experience and want to spend more time in an ICU environment. Equally so, never want to set foot in ICU again ever in their her life. (laughs) But, you know, it's about harnessing that as well and, and seeing if we can come up with ways of being able to enable staff to retain some of their critical care skills and competence, maybe on some kind of a rotational contract where they can work I don't know, so, so long in theatre environment, so long in ICU, so long in HDU, whatever it might look like, to try to, to manage our massive workforce problem that mm. we've got right now. And I think as well, we talked a bit, well, quite a lot at the beginning about the technical and non-technical aspects of nursing. And some of the technical aspects of nursing, you have to start to think, moving forward, we know we don't have enough staff. We're not going to be able to miraculously change that. So we're going to have to think of different ways of working, whether we like it or not. And some of those technical aspects that we see critical care nurses doing, you have to question, do you actually need a qualified intensive care nurse to do that task? So, for example, patients that are on haemofiltration, from a critical care nursing point of view, they need to be able to use the machine. They need to understand how the machine works in relation to the patient's Mm. physiology and they need to be able to adjust the parameters according to the the results for that particular Mm. patient. Do they actually need to set up the machine themselves at the outset? And the question is probably no. And bearing in mind it takes half an hour, 40 minutes to set up a a CVVH machine, that 35, 40 minutes could actually be devoted to some other aspects of nursing Mm. specific care. And a technician could do some of those jobs. Same as setting up a ventilator, for example. Exactly the same Mm -hmm. argument. Nurses need to manage the ventilator in relation to the patient physiology, but they don't need to set the ventilator for themselves. It's about thinking of different ways of working to utilise the right staff doing the right thing. You know, we can't just continue to complain we've got no staff. We need to come up with some solutions. Yeah. um Because so it's not—it's not going to. We're not going to miraculously wake up one morning and and somebody says, "Oh, by the way, I've just found you ten thousand more ICU <laughs> nurses." It isn't going to happen. So yeah. you know, we've—we've got to do something about it.
0: You mentioned redeployment of people during the pandemic, but outside of the pandemic, one of the big issues that you see in intensive care is if the unit is overstaffed or the acuity that it tends to be used as a pool to support the rest of the hospital, which. That in itself always feels like it. that is a threat to staffing in itself, isn't
1: it? It is, and a lot of the discussion around retention of staff in ICU, that's one of the reasons why ICU staff choose to leave, because they've chosen to work in ICU for a specific reason. They don't want to work on a ward. I always find it really interesting. And again, it goes back to the fact that people don't actually understand intensive care nursing. But, you know, you can have... Five shifts out of six, where you have absolutely stood on your head for five shifts, you don't get a lunch break, you don't get a chance to go for a wee, and then the sixth shift, you know, for whatever reason, patients have been discharged, patients sadly might have died, you've got spare staffing, and the hospital's answer to that is to send those spare staff who have just worked ridiculously over the last five days to cover shortfall on the ward, but it's never reciprocated the other way. So when I see you are absolutely at full pelt and really, really under it and struggling with staffing and and what have you, you never get any staff from the rest Mm -hmm. of the hospital to come and support intensive care. And that's one of the reasons that intensive care nurses say is their reason for leaving. And we we talk so much, don't we, about patient care. How important patient care is. How we need to improve patient care. How we need to deliver expert patient care. But we don't think that the person, the people that deliver that patient care, are the staff. So actually, if you look after the staff properly in the first place, if you maintain safe staffing, if you maintain good working environments, if you look after your staff, if you if you make sure they've got adequate access to CPD, if you make sure that they feel valued, then by default. Your patient's care will improve.
0: For me, it was quite a stark thing in the reporting of the pandemic. There was an awful lot of focus on number of ventilators. But the thing that was really underreported, you know, was the fact that, well, very well having a ventilator and having a physical bed, a normal ward nurse can't come to intensive care no. and just pick up a, a level three patient.
1: No. And I know um, Alison Pittard, who I know that you'll know, Alison and I did lots and lots of press interviews right at the beginning. Uh, and both of us kept saying, it doesn't matter how many ventilators you have, if you don't have the staff to look after ventilators, because, you know, technical, technical kit is fantastic, and we couldn't do our job without a lot of it. But equally, it can't work without one of us using it. So you, a ventilator is not going to work, if there's nobody there to plug it in and attach it to the patient. It just made no sense at all at the time. But, you know, the biggest key issue that we had was was staffing, and it always was, and it will continue to be. And there's there's been very limited discussion as well, I think, about how we can support staff coming out of the pandemic. Mm. But nobody's actually thinking that. The same set of staff that have just worked for a year and a half trying to get through the pandemic, with absolutely amazing, I mean, some of the staffing levels that I've seen nationally. Mm. I talked to a charge nurse who walked on to shift one night to find that they had six patients to one ICU nurse with no redeployed support. And I mean, that is terrifyingly mm. unsafe, hugely unsafe. So the pressure that the staff have been under over the last 18 months, there's, there's just a complete lack of understanding that those same mm. staff are now having to try to work on the backlog block of patients, which we haven't been able to manage because we've been managing the pandemic. That all makes sense. So, all of a sudden, intensive care units aren't miraculously empty. They're now just filled with all the patients that we would have had had we not had COVID patients. But we know that we've got, certainly from a nursing point of view, we know that we've got nursing staff who are off sick and quite significant numbers of staff that are off sick, particularly from a mental health and post traumatic stress type point of view. So, these units are then going back to pre pandemic management but actually they've got less staff than they had when they started all of this back Hmm. in January last year. So, you know, they're still under, you know, an an immense amount of pressure. It cumulatively builds over a period of time, don't you? Hmm. Whereas this is cumulatively affected over, you know, a a prolonged period of time. So you've got staff that are just absolutely physically worn out.
0: What do you feel the best way to support our nursing staff?
1: You know, I hate the word resilience. I have a real, I have a real issue with the fact that you know resilience is all about the individual's reaction to something. Well, actually, a lot of the reaction is something that you can't control. It doesn't matter how strong or resilient you are. If you are thrown into something like this, a lot of people simply will not be able to manage it, thinking of that cumulative effect. So, so it's it's about management, both intensive care unit-based management and moving up, so moving up to Mm. matron level, director of nursing level, chief nursing level, we've we've got to get back to the idea that you have got to look after your staff. Mm. It is absolutely imperative that you look after your staff. You look after your staff, your staff will look after everything else. So instead of your targets being improved patient care, making sure that your news scores completed every hour make sure that you have filled in a false risk assessment whatever it might be i'm not suggesting they're not important but actually if your staff are well looked after they're well supported they feel valued they've got adequate access to education those news charts will be filled in the false Mm. risk assessment will be completed because you've got staff that are fully signed up to their role within your organization so it absolutely for me is about Look after your staff. And sometimes that can be really little things. Check up on people. Make sure they're all right. Look after human beings. You know, for a caring profession, it astounds me how we don't actually care for our staff. I think from a bedside nurse perspective, it's sometimes really easy to feel as if you're on your own and nobody's interested in you and nobody understands the situation that you're in in. Um, And I I suppose for Michael, if you're thinking about with a BACCN hat on particularly, you know, there's lots and lots and lots and lots of national work and national level discussion going on to try to make the life of intensive care nurses better. Mm. And there's lots of people, you know, certainly not just me by a long stretch of the imagination, who are all advocating as much and as hard as we possibly can to improve access to education, to improve better working environments, to protect one-to-one staffing levels, you know, that that work is happening even if you can't directly see it in front of you. So I hope that bedside ICU nurses realise that there are people who are really passionate about this and are doing their best to try to protect and promote it moving forward.